reading is from the Gospel of John, chapter 4, and it's on page 1066. John, chapter 4, on page 1066. Jesus talks with the Samaritan woman. The Pharisees heard that Jesus was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John, although in fact it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. When the Lord learned of this, he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria, so he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, You've nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his flocks and herds? Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, Go, call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, You are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you have had five husbands and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming, and has now come, when the true worshippers will worship the Father in the spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshippers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshippers must worship in the spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah, called Christ, is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, 
I, the one speaking to you, I am he. Just then his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman. But no one asked, what do you want or why are you talking with her? Then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Christ? They came out of the town and made their way towards him. Meanwhile, his disciples urged him, Rabbi, eat something. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. Then his disciples said to each other, Could someone have brought him food? My food, said Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Don't you have a saying, it's still four months until harvest? I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. Even now, the one who reaps draws a wage and harvests a crop for eternal life, so that the sower and the reaper may be glad together. Thus the saying, one sows and another reaps, is true. I sent you to reap what you have not worked for. Others have done the hard work, and you have reaped the benefits of their labor. Many of, <clears throat> many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed two days. And because of his works, words, many more became believers. The second lesson is found in Psalm 145, which is on page 631. Psalm 145 on page 631. I will exalt you, my God the King. I will praise your name forever and ever. Every day I will praise you and extol your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. His greatness no one can fathom. One generation commends your works to another. They tell of your mighty acts. They speak of the glorious splendor of your majesty and I will meditate on your wonderful works. They tell of the power of your awesome works, and I will proclaim your great deeds. They celebrate your abundant goodness and joyfully sing of your righteousness. The Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and rich in love. The Lord is good to all. He has compassion on all he has made. All you have made will praise you, O Lord. Your saints will extol you. They will tell of the glory of your kingdom and speak of your might, so that all men may know of your mighty acts and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and your dominion endures through all generations. The Lord is trustworthy in all he promises, and faithful in all he does. The Lord upholds all who fall and lifts up all who are bowed down. 
the eyes of all look to you, and you give them their food at the proper time. You open your hand and satisfy the desires of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and loving towards all he has made. The Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. He fulfills the desires of those who fear him. He hears their cry and saves them. The Lord watches over all who love him, but all the wicked will be destroyed. My mouth will speak in praise of the Lord. Let every creature praise his holy name forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Try that. <laughs> Turn it everywhere, haven't I? Never mind. I want to think a little bit about one of the problems which arises in Psalm 145. Um, Jesus' tolerance and intolerance. What he won't put up with, as well as the extraordinary love that he shows to this particular woman. The, the psalm has a difficulty in it. It talks about all men know, knowing of God's mighty acts, but it also says the Lord is righteous in all his ways and loving towards all that he's made. The Lord is near to all who call on him. He hears their cry and saves them. The Lord watches over all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. Now that's difficult, isn't it? Because it looks like a, some sort of contradiction and there's this problem that we have, I think, in trying to reconcile God's love and God's righteousness. Could just say that's how it is, that's what the Bible says, and that would be an answer for most of us. But would it really be God's righteousness if he simply tolerates indefinitely the terrible things, enslavement, slaughter, exploitation that we do to each other. 
if he were to tolerate that forever, would heaven be heaven if there was evil in it? So that's, that's the problem. And I think in a way, as well as answering lots of other things, John 4 does have a bit of a go at that by talking about these different mountains. So if God says anything to you, stop listening to me and start listening to him. But one of the things might be that Jesus doesn't tolerate sin. He's provided the answer, the reconciliation, but he does tolerate people. He doesn't love sin, but he does love people. And there comes a time when we have to make up our mind what or who we trust in. This passage has two mountains. There's Mount Gerizim, which is in Samaria, where Jesus meets the woman. The place Sychar is very close to Shechem in the Old Testament, which had been fortified by Jeroboam, who turned it from a city of refuge where people could go to see if there was any uh, challenge against them where they could be safe until you could see whether there was any evidence against them or not. Rather like the woman taken in adultery, Jesus says to the people who want to stone her, let he that is without sin cast the first stone. And they all clear off. There's no accuser. And Jesus says, I don't condemn you either. Go and leave your life of sin. So these cities of refuge were places people could go in the Old Testament where they would be safe from personal revenge of people until the, the truth of the situation could be resolved. They couldn't be summarily chased and killed without a proper hearing. But Jeroboam had turned it into a fortified place for his own uh, purposes. So that's quite nearby. And the mountain, uh, Gerizim, it's called, is where the Samaritans had made a temple of their own, following their own design, their own intentions, their own purposes, their own plans, their own priesthood, their own law, their own everything, not quite their own law, but their own procedures, not directed by God, but their own, uh, where they would worship. Whereas Jews worshipped in Jerusalem, according to the law set down in the Old Testament. You'll be pleased to know that's about three pages of this sermon gone. Worship, I think, must mean worship acceptable to God. So when there's this conversation in verse uh, 19, um, I can see you're a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on the mountain, but you Jews claim the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. She's asking Jesus a really important theological question. How do I produce worship to God? Which God will accept? And the answer, well, it's on a mountain. What's the point of a mountain? Well, that's where sacrifice takes place. In Jerusalem, there's the temple. That's where the sacrifice is made so that people can then have that relationship with God, which we call worship, not just standing, singing, praying, but the whole of our life is supposed to be worship, isn't it? Really. And it's through that sacrifice. Now, the Old Testament, Jews at the time, Jesus is saying this in that three years, as it were, between the Testaments, that moment at the end of his life when he died, that's the end and the beginning. Um, but that's that little gap in between the two, those sort of three years of ministry and a sandwich of thousands of years and then the rest of time now for us. So worship can only be made 
where an atonement has been made to put us at one with God, despite the terrible things that we do. And we do do terrible things, don't we? It's not just people elsewhere who do terrible things. We've done terrible things too. So the Jews were relying on the procedure which had been set down in their tradition. Their mountain, if you like, where worship is acceptable, is in Jerusalem. Deuteronomy is very clear. Deuteronomy 12 and Leviticus 10 um, and 16 show that God will accept worship which is made in the proper manner. He says how. He says it's got to be in the particular place, not where you choose, but where I choose. The particular priest, not that you choose, but I choose. The particular method, not what you choose, but what I choose. The way and the place. And Leviticus 16 talks about the day of atonement, when the high priest, with a particular ritual and a particular emphasis, has to make atonement for himself, for his household, for the altar, for the tabernacle, and for the people. All those things need God's cleansing. Well, us, or we, need God's cleansing. So did they get it right? Did they do it right? No, they didn't, unfortunately. They didn't. They mixed their tradition with other gods, other idols, other traditions. And when Solomon dedicates the temple, he asks, can God really live with men? God's already explained in Deuteronomy 12 that he, he, he can do that if, if men follow his instructions not just in how to live, but how to offer the sacrifice which will enable God to accept their lives and uh, fellowship with him. I'll be their God, they'll be my people. There are promises in Jeremiah, Jeremiah 31 and in Ezekiel 46 about God putting himself so that he lives with us and in us. But this can only be done if there's uh, a satisfactory Sacrifice. Jesus, of course, has made that sacrifice. But the whole of the Old Testament, in a way, is about God's revelation and man's rejection of it. So you have, when Solomon dedicates the temple, that big question, can God live in a temple made by hands? And God's answer to him um, in 2 Kings is, if my people, which are called by my name, will humble themselves and turn from their wicked ways and seek my voice and pray, I will hear from heaven and forgive their sin and heal their land. So that's the deal which God offers. But unfortunately, 2 Kings 17 explains what happened. Uh, after Solomon's death, the kingdoms are separated, Israel to the north, is ruled by Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who's described as the man who caused Israel to sin. And the south is ruled by Rehoboam, that's uh, Judah. And in the north, which is where Samaria is, which is where Jesus is, in this story, talking to the woman who lives there in Samaria, they didn't listen, it says in 2 Kings 17. And they wouldn't listen, they were stiff-necked as their fathers who did not trust in the Lord their God, 
They rejected his decrees and the covenant he'd made with their fathers and the warnings he'd given them. They followed worthless items, idols, and they followed worthless idols and themselves became worthless. They imitated the nations around them, although the Lord had ordered them, do not do as they do. And they did the things the Lord had forbidden them to do. And it goes on to say that the Lord rejected them. Um, and uh, in, uh, Jeroboam enticed Israel away from following the Lord and caused them to commit a great sin. What he did was to put up two temples with golden calves uh, for the people to worship in place of God. It might be worth thinking whether we put anything in the place of God when we worship him, whether we bring everything of ourselves to him, whether we put anything in the way, whether we rely on anything else than upon God's grace and the salvation offered by Jesus following the cross. But the Israelites persisted in all the sins of Jeroboam and didn't turn away from them, so God removed them from his presence. The people of Israel were taken from their homeland into exile in Assyria, and they're still there. Terrible words. But what happened to the area in Samaria? In come some new people. The king of Assyria brought people from Babylon, Cutha, Ava, Hamath, and Sepharvaim, settled them in the towns of Samaria to replace the Israelites. They took over Samaria and lived in its towns. First they lived there. They didn't worship the Lord. A message is sent to the king of Assyria, and he replies and sends them uh, a captive. Have one of the priests you took captive from Samaria go back and live there and teach the people what the God of the land requires. Hurrah! God's word is being brought back. But nevertheless, each national group made its own gods in the several towns where they settled and set them up in the shrines the people of Samaria had made at the high places. They worshipped the Lord, but they also appointed all sorts of their own people to officiate as priests. They worshipped the Lord, but they also served their own gods in accordance with the customs of the nations from which they'd been brought. Isn't that a picture of Britain today, where we have this great uh, acceptance of multiculturalism, multi-ethnicity, multi-everything, but perhaps we need to concentrate on what God is saying, because God makes an exclusive claim, and he won't have his gospel uh, filled out, messed up with other faiths and traditions that we might rely on. I know I get it in the neck for saying this, but God makes an exclusive claim. He says, I am the Messiah. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the bread of life. He makes those, those claims to be exclusive. And that's one of the, the things that Jesus is talking about here, I think in John 4, with this business about the woman. He speaks to her. She's relying a bit on Jacob's well. That's part of the tradition from the Old Testament that suggests that somebody is standing before God as a descendant of Abraham. Well, that won't do either. And actually, because she's Samaritan, she probably isn't a lineal descendant of Jacob. But the Bible does say that it's the children of the promise that uh, Romans, we read it not long ago, didn't we? God's promise and covenant, rather than a claim. Uh, So I'm not going to get into heaven because I'm British or because I'm Welsh. That's the deal. 
but it has to be faith in Jesus. So Jesus is talking to this woman, and she wants that water. It's a tricky situation because Jesus has arrived, and he's asking a woman at 12 o'clock for water. Very quickly, if she's there at 12 o'clock, she's not accepted by her other people because the time you go to collect water is in the morning, not in the heat, hottest part of the day. So she's an outcast even amongst a people of outcasts. And Jesus, God incarnate, asks her for a drink. And there's a trick in that. And she says, you haven't got a bucket. Because if, God, if, Je- if she uses her bucket, Jesus is defiled because that's a Samaritan bucket. Jesus came, and Jesus was defiled again and again and again for us in the company he kept in the things that he did. He touched dead bodies and brought them to life. He touched people who had um, illnesses and uh, demonic possession. He touched people and healed them. All those things defile him. And in the, the most important moment on the cross, it's explained that he became sin for us. Jesus, who knew no sin at all in his life, became sin for us. That is about as defiled as anybody could get. Cursed is he that hangs on the tree. In order that we might become the righteousness of God in him. In him. So the Samaritan mountain is not going to be any good. The Samaritan bucket is not going to be any good. And the water, which is the well from Jacob, that's not going to be any good either because that is like the water in the Old Testament. That's water that brings judgment because we can't keep the law. We mess up in the law and we come under judgment. But Jesus has this water that he talks about in, I think it's 12 if I can read it right. Jesus answered, anyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become a spring of life, a spring of water welling up to eternal life. That's the water she wants. Perhaps she doesn't want to have to go with her bucket again next day. But maybe she does think that that's something to do with eternity. Uh, Jesus in John 7 talks about the water, the Holy Spirit, that will well up out of him to others. So out of us to others. So that goes a step further than just her salvation. Talks of the salvation of other people as well. But she wants the water. And he says, go and call your husband. And then her life, which has always been plain to Jesus, is clear. She knows that he knows all about her. And yet, he's still prepared to offer her the water of life. Nobody, nobody is too awful for Jesus to provide the water of life. Anyway, she realizes now that he's a prophet, and so she asks him the $64,000 question. If you're old enough to remember the $64,000 question, you're probably older than I am. These days, it'd be several million, wouldn't it? But this is the question that really gets you the prize. Get this one right, and you get the $64,000. And the question is, where should we worship? Which mountain should we follow? Should we follow the mountain uh, in Jerusalem? where the law says the sacrifice should be, or should we follow the mountain in Gerizim, the mountain in Samaria, which, is, which has everything. It's pick and mix. It's got the best of this religion. It's got the best of that religion. It's got the worst of this and the worst of that. No, 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 it's got... It isn't any good, is it? Really. 
pick and mix all the nice sweeties from Woolies. It, that's not how God has set it up. And Jesus says, no, neither of those mountains, but there will be a time when those who worship will worship in spirit and truth. So not relying on the Jewish tradition, tradition in itself is not going to get us home, but not relying on the postmodern pick and mix. If it's right for you, dear, it's right. Can you think of anything as stupid as that? It's an insult to the barest intelligence, surely. Oh. In other words, subjective truth is tosh. Spirit and truth, that's how we're to worship. And Jesus enables all this by what happened on the cross. got through another four pages. But the woman engages with Jesus, doesn't she? That, that there's a conversation as a result of which she does come to uh, the next question. She's asked the $64,000 question, which how should we worship in a way that God will accept? And she doesn't get a straight answer. She gets an answer which is true, but which is doctrine that she doesn't understand. Time is coming when true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. That's because the, the mountain on which Jesus is crucified is not in Jerusalem, it's just outside the wall at the time. So that's, in a sense, that's a different mountain, and we don't worship that mountain. We don't even worship the temple. Jesus took a lot of trouble to get the Romans to knock that temple down, having previously explained in Matthew 21 that that was going to happen. I'm not rubbishing the law in the Old Testament, but Matthew 5 says that Jesus was asked about it, and he said, I come not to destroy the law, but to fulfill it. Fulfill it. And the prophets. Now, the Samaritans didn't have the prophets. They just had the first five books of the law. They didn't have the prophets. But Jesus is fulfilling the law and the prophets. And what happens if you've got a bucket that's absolutely full? Can you get any more into it? No, you can't. It's full. If you fulfill the law, it's done its job. So we're not under law, we're under grace. He's fulfilled everything. The moral law, the, the legal law, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, uh, and strength, love your neighbor as yourself. He's fulfilled every inch of that law, and he's fulfilled the sacrificial law. This is the really good news. He's fulfilled the sacrificial law, so we don't need another sacrifice. And Hebrews goes to some lengths to explain that we don't need any other sacrifice than the one that Jesus has made once and for all. Hebrews 7. If you want to look all this up, it's 2 Kings 17, 2 Chronicles 36, Deuteronomy 12, Romans 9, Hebrews 7 to 9. But what are we going to do when we encounter Jesus? Are we going to go on? He says that the Samaritans worship what they don't know, and Jews worship what they do know. And he knows. Now, after three years after these events, we do know how God has managed to fulfill the law 
in Christ, in his death, and to remove the need for one sacrifice per year or per day by the right person in the right place for all the right sins in the right way with all the right words all that endless repetition Jesus has fulfilled in one go on the cross so we can worship God not on either of those mountains God is very very tolerant of the woman not tolerant anymore of either mountain. We can't rely on an old tradition. We can't just do the things that were done last time without understanding why. It needs to be renewed in each generation. You can't rely on a pick and mix uh, religion or gospel brought in from somewhere else, all the goodies you want. Because Psalm 145 does say that God loves and he's righteous but the wicked he will destroy. The woman, nearly there, understands a bit by bit she knows that he's a prophet. Then she says, in answer to the answer that she gets to her question, I know that Messiah's coming. Now, she got a bit of prophecy from, perhaps through Deuteronomy, where Moses is told that there's going to be a, a special kind of a prophet coming. But anyway, she's got a little bit of the prophets from the first five books, not what we call the prophets. When he comes, he'll explain everything. Well, this is the thing, isn't it? If you don't understand, ask Jesus. Ask God to explain. And then he says, I who speak to you am he. This is that wonderful moment. She wants to know. He tells her. If we want to know about God, just ask Jesus. And it's very interesting. She then scampers off and says to her friends, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Christ? And then in verse 30, I think, many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them. He stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. They said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we've heard for ourselves and we know that this man really is the savior of the world. So it's not just what the church says. It's God actually revealing himself to new people in Christ. That's the nub of it. He says to the Samaritan woman in 16, go Call your husband and come back. God will be saying lots of things to us today, and he'll be saying different things to different people, but he might be saying something like, go call your husband and come back. He might be saying something like, go, share the little you know about me with someone you bump into, you, you're near to, you know, you love. Say, uh, uh, say something that you, you know. Call that person to me and come back. Come back. Don't be off on your own for the next whatever it is years. Don't go off on your own to Morocco. Be back with Jesus. That's where the energy, that's where the strength, that's where the spirit comes from. Might be saying that. Might be saying other things. But 
It's extraordinary, isn't it, that this Samaritan woman, who appeared to be an outcast from Israel, an outcast amongst her own people, meets Jesus by a well, gets into conversation, believes what he says. She's, in a sense, the first missionary that I can see in the Bible in this chapter, in this part of John. She's the first person who goes off. She's the first person who tells somebody else who comes to Jesus, spends two days, and believes. They're spending two days, not a church weekend, two days with Jesus. That's a good investment for eternity. Lord, please speak. Help us in a moment or two to think about what it is that you've said to us today from whatever source, uh, to hear, to follow, to go and to come back to you. In Jesus' name, amen.